I'm Sheila Brummer, host of The Lead Podcast, with insight from local, regional, and national experts. Today's segment features one of the pioneers of ethics in leadership. My name is Joanne Chula, and my title is Professor and Director of the Institute for Ethical Leadership. And what do you think makes for a good leader? There's two basic qualities that I write about, and they are basically ethics, being an ethical person and being competent, knowing how to do their job, knowing how to get things done. Uh, that sounds very simple, but of course, the complications are all in the details. Yeah, I was going to say, what tips do you give people when it comes to ethics? Can you can you teach someone to be more ethical? That's a question that goes back to Plato. I mean, he said, you know, can you teach virtue? Um, yeah, I think we can. And especially with young people, they often assume that uh, business runs on a lot of unethical practices. So part of teaching people about ethics is actually teaching them how businesses and other organizations really work. So that's why this notion of competency and ethics are very intertwined. A lot of people engage in unethical behavior in business and other areas because they don't know how to do things. But, you know, the problem with education is there's no guarantees. I mean, you can teach any number of students a subject, and that doesn't guarantee they'll be good at it. <laughs> and you have a lot of experience in that, so you know. Yes. <laughs> I think a lot of it comes from just being on the job and, and being in that experience and learning, this didn't work, so I'm going to try this. That's true, and, and that's how we learn ethics in life. I mean, you learn it from your family, your environment. But as you get into more complex situations, it becomes a lot harder. That's why ethics is a lifelong learning project. It's not something you get in one place. So what we teach in a classroom, say to undergraduates, if I'm teaching business ethics to undergraduates, part of what you do is you're you're sort of simulating experience. So you use a lot of case studies. Uh, sometimes you have speakers in. Uh, you use a lot of practical examples. So they begin to understand the kinds of things people face in business, uh, the kinds of things people have done in business, et cetera. So you kind of do that. Um, still doesn't guarantee, you know, some of it's their personality. A lot of people feel when they're young and in the workplace that they're stressed out and, uh worried about their careers, and they might engage in unethical behavior for those reasons. So there's a lot of reasons why when they actually get out of the classroom, they might not behave ethically. In some of your work, you also talk about, you know, making sure you do the right thing in the right way for the right reason. Are there any exceptions to that? Um, well, there's not exceptions to it. It's just that sometimes you can't get all three right. So there are situations, I think some of the most difficult situations leadership that leaders face is when they have to um, maybe do the right thing the wrong way, but for the right reason. <laughs> um, or the wrong thing the right way for the right reason. <laughs> so there's lots of situations where there are paradoxes and you don't get all of them right. And that's where judgment and, and the really difficult ethical uh, decisions come in. Have you ever had that happen to you? Nothing jumps into my mind, but I think almost all of us have faced it at some time, uh, whether it's, you know, having to get rid of employees to save the company. Well, maybe that's the wrong way to do it. An example I often use in classes about a charity that decided to do something about child slavery and they bought the, they went to the country and they bought the people out of slavery. Well, that's 
trying to do the right thing for the right reason, but seriously the wrong way into it. So there are situations like that that we all face in life, and those are the big trade-offs. And where do you think leadership is going? I know, you know, nowadays people really value the servant leader. What, what do you think is next? I, I look at, at leadership from a very big historical perspective. And um, it's not like there's anything new that's next. It's the same stuff that gets recycled. I mean, right now in international uh, leadership and even to some extent in domestic leadership in politics, we see a kind of cycle where we're reverting to a lot of anti-democratic notions of leadership. Uh, America is a funny country because on the one hand, we think of ourselves as egalitarian and we think of ourselves as democratic, but a lot of the studies, for example, a study that has been done for years out of um, the Kennedy School at Harvard indicates that we like leaders that are forceful and decisive and actually don't sound too democratic or participatory or any of those things. So leadership goes in cycles. It goes in historical cycles. It goes in cycles based on what's going on in society. But where we are now is a somewhat concerning authoritarian notion of leadership that is surprising, certainly in America, but we see it in other places, um, Hungary, Brazil, and things like that. And that's where we have to depend on our institutions to keep leadership in line. That's what they're there for. And some of those institutions, though, seem to, to need some help. Yes. Well, that's the problem is that uh, authoritarian leaders, the first things they go after are the justice system. Certainly you'd see examples like that in Venezuela when Hugo Chavez took over. Uh, You can see examples of that in Hungary. You take over the justice system, you take over some of the mechanisms uh, that keep leaders in check, largely so that you can uh, have more power than is given to you by traditional institutions. I think some people even think that with the U.S. Supreme Court. Yes, I think they would. And also, even in the U.S. presidency, and this is not a political statement, but going back, because we've had so much dysfunction in the Congress, we see that presidential leadership has done a lot of uh, executive orders. Obama did that. First, the federal government already prohibits employment discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Once I sign this order, the same will be explicitly true for gender identity. Trump did that uh, where, because they can't get the legislators to do their job, uh, they, they issue executive orders, which in a way puts more power into the hands of the executive. So, you know, leadership is a complex social construction, and we look at it both socially and historically, as well as in terms of, you know, psychologically and, and culturally. Do you have a leader from history that you admire? Uh, that's always a hard question, because I think leaders are human beings that are fallible like the rest of us. In current history, I really admire Ang, one of the most powerful people in Europe for years, strong moral compass. She's not perfect. She made mistakes. Germans will tell you what her mistakes were. But here's a woman who has done an extraordinary job, stayed in power, no-nonsense leader, who, you know, led well and uh, was a moral leader not only in Germany but also in Europe, especially uh, when they had the influx of immigrants. You cut out just shortly when you were saying the name Angela Merkel is who I think you were talking about, of course. Yes. 
I was down Angela Merkel with Germany. <laughs> Nothing can be taken for granted. Everything is possible. Thank you. Now, you have all these credentials. You were the editor for the textbook that we had for class. And um, <laughs> you have all these accolades. I mean, you're currently at Rutgers. You've been, you know, you've done instruction at Harvard, Wharton. The list goes on and on and on. Of all these accomplishments, is there one thing that you're most proud of? Well, I guess I would have to say I'm most proud of being one of the founders of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies. Um, I was one of the four faculty who basically designed a degree-granting institution in a university from scratch, and it's been going since 1992, uh, and it's a completely unique way of educating. It's a liberal arts approach to studying leadership, and um, very proud of our graduates, very proud of the school. I mean, very few people in life ever get an opportunity certainly in academia, to design an institution from the bottom up. I mean, I was on the hiring committee of almost every single faculty and almost every dean. Um, so I'm very proud of that achievement and what me and my colleagues achieved there. And that was at the University of Richmond? That was at the University of Richmond, yes. Yeah. What are your goals for the future? You have all this research you've done for so many years, you were the, the founder, the pioneer of ethics in, in leadership research. Do you have a goal for the future? Do you have something that you want to do next? Actually, I do. I'm on sabbatical this year, and my project is a book I've been wanting to write for a very long time, which is a book on the moral history of leadership. And actually, let me clarify, the moral and immoral history of leadership. I want to go back and look at the patterns of, of the way leaders have behaved over time. Because the more I study history, the more I realize uh, none of these leaders we see today are new types. They're, they're, they're all patterns that we've seen again and again, going back to ancient times. So uh, that's what I'm doing now. And um, it's, it's a long project. It's a big project, uh, but I'm really excited about it. How do you have time to find like a, a work-life balance? I always find that challenging. Um, well, you know, I wrote a book called The Working Life, The Promise and Betrayal of Modern Work. And one of the things I found concluded at the end is you don't have to have a work-life balance and that everybody is different and that for some people they need a balance, but it depends on your life. I mean, if, if you're not married and have no children and love your work, why should you have to relax? Um, and I've known people like that. So, so part of the question of work-life balance really is what is your life like? And that balance could look very different for a lot of people. Some people need and want a lot of time off. Some people are happy as clams just working away. So um, I think, and that was, that was, in, when you talk about meaningful work, which is what my book is about, when you talk about meaningful work, what you're really talking about is work that complements and enhances your life and allows you to lead a good life. Well, for some people leading a good life, let's say you are a medical missionary in a developing country. Your life may be a whole lot of work. Work-life balance may not 
mean the same thing to you as it might mean to someone who, say, works in a corporation and maybe is getting burnt out and ignoring her family or whatever. So it's a variable question. I think finding happiness is the most important thing, don't you? At least in my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely the most important thing. And there's lots of ways people find it. Well, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You made you made okay. you made my year in my project. So, <laughs> okay, thank you very much. That is Joanne Chula, acclaimed expert in the field of ethics and leadership. Can't wait to read her future work. This is the Lead Podcast, a production of Sealand Public Media. I'm Sheila Brummer, host and producer. This media project also served as a final assignment for a master's in organizational leadership. Check out other episodes on the website, kwit.org, and where you like to get your podcasts. The lead stands for Listen, Empower, Act, Develop. Thanks for taking the time to listen and lead on.